Let us pray. Grant unto us, O Lord, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that we might grow in our knowledge of you and be strengthened in patience and endurance and joy. Giving thanks to the Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If there's one thing that we know that God hates, it would have to be pride. And when we hear Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector at the temple, we instantly recoil from the Pharisee's arrogance and we sympathise with the tax collector. We don't want to be like the Pharisee. We don't speak like the Pharisee. We don't thank God that we're not like other sinners. And we don't list for God all our virtues. Then again... We don't naturally speak or act like the tax collector either. He wouldn't even look up. And he says to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We seem to be most comfortable somewhere in the middle. We don't want to be proud as the Pharisee, but nor do we want to be as abject or as humble as the tax collector. But where exactly in the middle are we? Social science researchers have asked that very question and they've come up with an answer. Did you know that most people think that they're better than others? They think that they're more ethical, more considerate, more cooperative and fair and loyal. Most people think that they obey the Ten Commandments more consistently than everybody else. One polling expert calls it the Great Contradiction. And the contradiction is this. The average person believes that he is a better person than the average person. Now that's not just a great contradiction, it's actually a great self-deception. And this self-perception or deception is actually pride in disguise. And so disguised is it that we don't even recognise it in ourselves. Cornelius Plantinga calls it a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We become our own dupes. We know the truth, yet we don't know it because we persuade ourselves of its opposite. And that's the thing about pride. It dulls our intellect. It stops us from reasoning. It shields us from reality. And if the researchers are right, and I'm pretty sure they are, then we're all more sinful than we think we are. And we're all more needful of salvation than we imagine. It's no wonder that God hates pride. In the book of Obadiah, God addresses the very proud nation of Edom. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, and it's the only book written to a nation other than Israel. And we don't know who Obadiah is, and we're not sure when the book was written, but probably it was soon after Judah had been overrun by the Babylonians in 587 BC. Now Edom were cousins of Israel. They're the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, and yet they hated Israel. But when Jerusalem was overtaken by the Babylonians, well, the Edomites looked on. They stood aloof. 
that they gloated over Judah's demise. And when the Judeans fled their country seeking refuge, well, the Edomites captured them, handed them back to the Babylonians as fugitives. Have a look from verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you you were like one of them. You shouldn't gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You, You shouldn't march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You shouldn't wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Now, Since the time of Jacob and Esau, the Edomites have resented their brother. And what drove their ongoing resentment was insidious pride. So the God of Israel, the God who hates pride, he responds by calling all the nations to war against Edom. So we read from verse 1. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. Pride had so deceived the Edomites that they saw themselves as great among the nations. So God says in verse 2, See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Now the Edomites lived in fortified cities high in the mountains overlooking Judah. These are the people of present-day Petra. They thought they were safe there, high in the cleft of the rock, and their position was unassailable. Pride and self-deception had given them a misplaced confidence in their geography. So God says to them from verse 3, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there... I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Edomites had also formed an alliance with the Babylonians, the very nation that had overthrown Judah. They thought that Babylon was their powerful friend. But once again, pride and self-deception had given them a misplaced confidence. So we read in verse 7, All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you'll not detect it. Edom were clueless. In their pride, they couldn't see the obvious. Edom also foolishly thought that they could find their security in wise men and warriors. But God thought otherwise. Have a look what God says from verse 8. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Timan, will be terrified 
and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. If there's one thing that God hates, it's pride. And because of their pride, he judged Edom harshly. As Israel's cousins, they should have known better. Now the second half of the book goes on to deal with retribution and deliverance. That Edom and the nations will be judged and will receive just as they have given. So we read in verse 15, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And though this seems like tit for tat, at one level it's simply the wisdom principle of living and dying by the sword. At another level, it assures us that God really does care about justice. And ultimately, no one will ever get away with injustice. And God is not indifferent to good or evil. And to Judah and God's people, well, there is the promise of deliverance. Have a look from verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they'll set him on fire and destroy him. There'll be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. And in verse 21, Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now on a very broad scale, the book of Obadiah is like all the prophets. It's a message of judgment and hope. A judgment to those who oppose God and his people and hope to those who put their trust in God. Just as God promised Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I'll curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. However, on a narrow scale, the book of Obadiah has much to say to us directly about the dangers of pride. As Paul warned the Corinthians, he said, if you think that you're standing firm, then be careful that you don't fall. And though we can see the foolishness of the Pharisees and the Edomites, we don't easily see our own pride because it's self-deceiving. And it's made even more insidious because our pride is absolutely absurd. And the absurdity is this. In our pride, we want so much to be like God. Meanwhile, God, as Jesus, empties himself in humility to be like us. And while we clamour to wrap ourselves in glory, well, Jesus divests himself of glory. He humbles himself in death, even death on a cross. It's absurd, but nonetheless real. And as pride blinds us spiritually, it simultaneously strengthens our defence mechanisms to keep us in the dark. But we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're much better than we really are. And we do so for good reason. For in our pride, 
and our self-sufficiency, but we reject grace. And yet we find ourselves constantly failing. Nevertheless, we refuse to accept help from God, let alone mercy and forgiveness. And in that case, the only thing that will keep us from despair is self-deception. If reality tells us that we're very ordinary and broken human beings and have every reason to be humble, then only self-deception can spare us from the starkness of reality. For though we don't want to see ourselves as being like the Pharisee, we just as surely don't want to see ourselves as wretched sinners before God. But we're better than that, we tell ourselves, and one another. But we convince ourselves that we're not so bad after all. Not surprisingly, we think that we're better than average. And we find ourselves thinking, or even saying, and I've heard this often, not here, I don't pretend to be perfect, but I'm as good as the next man. <coughs> heard that before? Wow. That doesn't sound exactly like the Pharisee, but it doesn't sound like the tax collector, does it? It sounds like pride in disguise. It, it sounds like self-deception, and we're all really good at it. But we convince ourselves that we're doing all right because, well, we, we love our family. We pay our taxes, we, we go to church when we can, we don't steal, we don't use illegal drugs, we don't swear a lot, we floss regularly. How good is that? As the Apostle James says, we're, we're like the person who looks at his face in the mirror of God's Word and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately he forgets what he looks like. But we've been socialised in the language of therapy, a language that proclaims, well, I'm okay and so are you. But that's hardly a biblical proclamation. For the proclamation of the Bible, and indeed reality, is that I'm not okay and you're not okay. You see, like you, I'm broken and sinful. I'm in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. Yet as a culture, we are fascinated with self-esteem. But we're told that guilt is unnatural, it's unhealthy. Self-esteem is the only cure. It's the path to self-acceptance and the ultimate basis for love. So we become adept at polishing the outer layers of our defensive armour. But our inner self still longs for love more than self-love. It still longs for grace more than managing appearances and still longs for authenticity more than admiration. Beneath the armour of our pride, we live as vulnerable men and women, longing to be loved and known. And our only hope is to be found in cautiously shedding the armour and clinging to God's amazing grace. Now, pride might save us from a moment of despair, but it means living a lie, and it will not save us from a sentence of judgment. The nation of Eden was judged, and it no longer exists today. But Petra is now no longer a city, it's just a tourist site. 
full of dry sand and surrounded by cliffs. Herod the Great, he was an Edomite, and in his pride he sought to destroy the true king of Israel. Matthew tells us that when Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the magic, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under. And it was his son, King Herod, who had Jesus mocked and ridiculed, the end point being Jesus' horrific death by crucifixion. In the eyes of the proud and pretentious world, the crucifixion of a Galilean carpenter is foolishness. But to those who have been saved, well, the cross is God's power and God's wisdom. The spirit of Eden is a spirit of pride. And only the cross of Jesus can save us from such pride. Only the cross can free us from pride's blinding deception. For to the cross has been nailed our sin and our shame. And by the cross, all powers and authorities have been disarmed and put to public spectacle. For he who was by the very nature God took upon himself the very nature of a servant. And he became like us in everything except for sin. And in humbling himself, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God exalted him to the highest place. So brothers and sisters, let us humble ourselves before the Lord and clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Let us pray. Create in us, O Lord, a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Grant to us a spirit of humility that realises our ignorance, admits our mistakes, recognises our needs, welcomes advice and accepts rebuke. Help us always to praise rather than criticise, to encourage rather than disparage, to build up rather than tear down, and to think of people at their best rather than their worst. Teach us always to take up Christ's yoke and learn from him, for he's gentle and he's humble in heart, so that we might find rest for our souls, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.